I do hope that you'll uh, consider participating in our small groups uh, as we uh, have this special month where you can connect and, and do so uh, easily. Uh, check out uh, the, the lobby. There's a, there'll be a, a gentleman out there ready to answer any questions you may have regarding small groups, locations, leaders, times, etc. cetera. Uh, but they're a great way to get connected to our church body and, and uh, experience uh, God's love in a real practical way. Well, uh, if you have a Bible with you, I want, and hopefully you, maybe you have it still open to Psalm 119, uh, verse 89 through 96. Um, many people, as you know, maybe you're one of them, see Wednesday as kind of a target day in their work week or their school week. Are you one of those folks? If you can make it to Wednesday, you figure you got it made. Um, I, I'm, I have days and weeks like that also. Uh, I think runners do the same kind of thing. They can, if they figure they can get to the halfway point, they, they can make it home. They can get all the way to the finish line. Uh, when we pay our mortgages, don't we kind of experience the same kind of thing? You look forward to that time when your principal, you're paying more on your principal than you are on the interest, and you see that change, and then you're just racing downhill towards the finish line, and it's kind of exciting. Uh, of course, some of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about when it comes to that, do you? You didn't play, pay, pay. Um, well, today marks the halfway point in our study of Psalm 119. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. We've only been here a year and a half. Sooner or later, we thought we'd get here, right? So, here we are. Um, two weeks ago, we finished um, the last stanza in verse 88. And, of course, Psalm 119 has 176 verses. And half of 176 is... 88. And so we are done with the first half of this psalm. And uh, we're picking up speed, making good progress. But not only we, are we halfway through this amazing chapter of the Bible, which by the way is the longest chapter in the Bible by far, uh, but we've made it through very difficult and emotionally heavy verses, uh, especially in stanzas 9 through 11. I mean, some of the stuff that the, the author was going through was heart-wrenching. Um, now we get to stanza 12 today, the Lambda stanza. And, it, and in this stanza, we're going to see the demonstration of God's listening. God has listened and answered all these prayers, all these cries for help that we've been reading of and personally experiencing in the last uh, few stanzas. And I think this is a breath of fresh air to us who have struggled, struggled alongside the, the psalmist to navigate our own discouragement and, and hope that God would show up. I mean, that is, that is a large portion of the battle, isn't it? Uh, hoping that, that God will show up, that God will help in your current circumstances. I know that many of you can identify with the painful struggle that the psalmist described in the stanzas 9, 10, and 11 because you face some pretty significant struggles yourselves. Uh, you remember a few weeks ago, I, I talked to you about the struggles that we as a church are going through personally. And I, and I went through the list of all the names of people who attend here, and I could only find four people in the list of all the names of people who attend that I couldn't think of something that they weren't going through. All the rest of us have troubles and trials and difficulties and dark times and hardships. 
Now, the Lambda stanza begins the second half of this great chapter, and it's full of encouraging, helpful, and practical things. So if you find yourself in the dark time, a difficult circumstance, guess what? We have answers coming at us from God in this particular stanza. And, by the way, throughout the rest of the chapter. So, can anybody guess what this stanza is about? Take a wild guess what you might think this stanza is about. If you say, well, it's probably about the Word of God, uh, that proves you've been here for a few weeks, right? <laughs> because every stanza in this chapter is about the Word of God. In fact, if you look closely, you'll discover that every verse is about the Word of God in this amazing chapter. Well, um, it, this, this particular stanza, the Lambda stanza, stanza, helps us see the importance and value of the eternal nature of God's Word. If someone were to say to you, you know, the eternal Word of God is, is really important, you'd say, yeah, sure, okay, I'm a Christian, I'll believe that. But this chapter explains why it's important. Why is it important to you, Christian friend, that the Word of God is eternal in nature? Well, my goal by the end of this day is to show you the practical value of knowing that fact and applying it daily. Okay? So I want you to walk with me through this stanza. As I normally do, I'm going to cover the entire stanza today, verses 89 through 96. And then in the weeks to come, I'll go back and I'll pick up some highlights from the, the stanza that I think are particularly valuable to people in this congregation. The first point, I have three today, and the first point comes from verses 89 through 91, and it is this, God's eternal word. Let me read for you the, the verses again that Levi already read, but verses 89 through 91. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. God's eternal word. Martin Luther wrote this, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It, it has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. The Bible is not antique or modern. It's eternal. Do you feel that way about the scriptures? It chases you down. One way or another, it will find you and it will deal with you at whatever place you're at. That's what Luther was saying. The theme of the Lambda stanza is the eternal nature of God's Word. In the first three verses, 89 through 91, that I just read for you, we have three parallel verses, and together they claim that since God's Word is eternal, we can confidently rest our future, our future eternity, that is, on the Word of God, but we can also build our present daily lives on this Word because it's eternal. It's, and eternity, by the way, is not just something in the future. Eternity began in the past. Actually, eternity never began. Eternity is eternity, including time. It's eternal. That's what the Word of God is. That's what this stanza is claiming. And this beyond claiming that, it's saying, and it has practical implications for our daily life. What are you building your life on? If I were able to get into your life and observe your life for a couple weeks, what would I discover to be your life's foundation? Would it be maybe building your Instagram followership? 
Uh, would it be uh, growing your finances? Would it be planning your next great vacation or having a comfortable retirement? What is the essence of your life, the makeup, the foundation of your life? If I took it away, your life would crumble. What is that thing? Well, Jesus taught that there was one very important foundation that we all must build our lives on. Listen to what he said in, in Matthew 7, 20, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, that's God's words, Jesus Christ's words, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with, and great was the fall of it. So what are you building your house on, friend, today? Think about it. Think about your life. Jesus said this again in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Ought we not to build our house on something eternal? To build our life on something eternal? That's the idea here in Psalm 119. The psalmist, in fact, in fact said it this way in verse 89, Forever, O Lord, our, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Every time you look at the night sky, referring to verse 89 in the heavens, every time you take a step on the earth, referring to verse 90, you're reminded of the faithfulness of God. I go out on uh, our back porch regularly in the evening, the stars are out, and an amazing occurrence happens. The same constellations are there that were there the night before. Every night, it seems to be, those same constellations are there. Of course, they move with the seasons, but they're always the same. Every time I go out and step on my yard, guess what? It seems to be firm. It's the same as it was the day before. I assume it's going to be the same tomorrow as it was and has been for generations. This is the unchanging nature of our universe. And the author of the psalm here is saying, that's just like God's faithfulness. He is unchanging. He's faithful. And his word is just like him. We're certain that the sun will come up tomorrow. In the same way, God's covenant with us is sure. We're certain that we will have air to breathe in an hour if we remain alive. And our salvation is the same. It is secure. His faithfulness endures from generation to generation. Charles Bridges, the great 18th century pastor and theologian, said this, the universe is a parable of grace. Think about that. The universe speaks about God's grace. It's a parable, a story about God's grace. In other words, at every single point, the universe reminds us of God's faithfulness. Looking out at the same stars, walking on the same solid ground. God is faithful. God is eternal. And his word is just like him. This is really important stuff. Psalm 89.2, the psalmist said, For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens, that is the stars, 
you establish, you demonstrate your faithfulness. This is what I'm saying. The truth of God's word being fixed or settled in the heavens combined with his faithfulness is the foundation of our hope. It is the hope of our salvation. God's faithfulness, his word's faithfulness, the eternal nature of God's word. Before Adam and Eve fell into sin, taking all of us with them, God knew and planned human history. Not only did he know and plan all the events of mankind, but listen, he also provided a remedy to the sin problem before anything was created. Before there was one sin, there was a Savior. This is amazing. When God was alone in existence without one galaxy or even a single star, before anything existed, God in his perfection planned and prepared for us a divine Savior who would enter human history as one of us to live the perfect life that God requires us to live but can't and then to die in our place because of our rebellion. All this before there was one human being, before there was one star. God and his word are eternal. What a wonderful loving creator we have. Listen to the way the Apostle Peter said it. 1 Peter 1.20 He, that is Jesus Christ, the Savior, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, before anything was ever made. Jesus Christ, the Savior of mankind, was foreknown. But He was made manifest or known in these last times, in, in our existence. Why? For the sake of you. For your sake, God is eternal. His purposes are eternal. For our sake. Friends, we do not depend on the fervency of our prayers. We do not depend on the wisdom of our plans or the diligence of our efforts. We depend upon the eternal word of God that is firmly fixed in the heavens not about your faithfulness. It's not about your hard work or your service in the nursery. It's about God's faithfulness. That's why we can face tomorrow. That's why we can face future eternity. So why is the eternal nature of God's word so important to you today as you sit here in this pew? Well, when you get into a tight spot and don't know what to do, you'd better hope that there's something more secure, more sure than your own wisdom. When you are threatened with a serious illness, you'd better hope that there is something more sure than experimental medical treatment. When you get old and are facing the end of life, you'd better hope that there's something more sure than the comfort of assisted living. When you close your eyes for the last time, you'd better hope that there's something sure on the other side. Are you sure? This is what the Word of God is for. The eternal Word of God. God's Word and all the promises in it are fixed in the heavens. His faithfulness endures from generation to generation to generation. Secondly, we see in verses 92 through 95, God's active word. God's active word. 
So not only is God word eternal, but it's also active. And I think this is where, if the first point has not been too practical, the second point will hit more closely to home. It's active. It's in Hebrews, remember Hebrews chapter 4 says the word of God is living and active. What does that mean? It does stuff. God's word, this here, does stuff. What kind of stuff? Well, there are three ways that the Word of God is active. Let me read for you. Well, let me just go through the points and I'll read them as they come up. Verses 92 through 95. These three verses, um, four verses, declare the, faith, the activity of God's Word. First of all, in verse 92, God's Word rescues. See this in 92? If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. But the law was his delight, so he didn't perish. It rescued him. That's the activity in this verse. It rescues. You ever need to be rescued? Hmm? If you haven't, you will. <laughs> Just keep breathing. Well, verse 92 here echoes back to the theme of the previous three stanzas. 92, if your law had not been my, I would have perished in my affliction. He was going through all sorts of stuff, remember? In stanzas 9 through 11. All sorts of problems. We, we saw some pretty dark places that the psalmist had been in those stanzas. He was at the end of his rope numerous occasions. And those stanzas are full of cries for help. Here in verse 92 the author realizes that God actually answered his prayers. God saw him through his hard times. If your law had not been my delight I would have perished. But it was my delight so I haven't perished. The uh, this author had received strength to carry on in God's Word. He had been encouraged and comforted by God's Word. It was through the habit of pouring over the Scriptures and having the Scriptures pour over him that he survived all these challenges that he was facing. How do you expect to survive the challenges you face? Let me encourage you, friends, with what this psalm is saying. Apply the Word of God to your life, to your circumstances. In verse 81, my soul longs for salvation, I hope in your word. In verse 83, for I have become like a wineskin. He was worn out, completely useless, yet I have not forgotten your word. Verse 87, they have almost made an end of me, but I have not forsaken your word. Verse 88, in your steadfast love give me life. He was pleading for help. And we discover here in, in this verse, that God answered his prayer. The word saw him through his discouragement, his darkness. The word brought him back from despair. The word gave him God's perspective on his circumstances. Isn't that what we need? Is God's view of our circumstances? When we get into dark places, we can barely see a step ahead of us. But God in his perfection and omniscience, meaning all-knowingness, can see everything on every side. He is perfect vision. The Word of God gives us that vision. This is what God's doing in my life. I, even though it feels like I'm in a dark, hopeless place right now, the Word of God says there is hope. Take one more step. That's what, what we're seeing here in this text. Um, the Word of God reminded this author that God's sovereign and perfect and loving plan was real. 
So what do you do when your circumstances turn negative? When you find yourself in a dark place, what do you do? When, when times are tough, what do most Christians do? Well, we, we run to God, right? Isn't that what we do as Christians? Yes, we hope and pray that God will do something to relieve our pain. We pray hard. We get our small group to pray hard. We, if, if it's serious enough, we get as many people we know to pray hard. But God will do something that will show up. But the writer here takes it one step further. He not only cried out to God to intervene, but he also poured the scriptures over his heart, his mind, his circumstances. He cried out to God, but then he said, I'm going to take this word and trust what it says and trust the author of this word and consume it. Have it saturate me. This author read, he meditated, he memorized and prayed over God's word. To have access, friends, to God's word and not use it would be like jumping out of an airplane with a parachute and not pulling the ripcord. Crying out to God on your way down, Lord, save me, but never pulling the ripcord. See, the word of God is useless to you unless you open it. You, you can cry out to God all you want, but unless you open his word, God will not rescue It's not like some good luck charm that you keep at home and put on a shelf. It's, it's a parachute meant to be opened. Verse 92 was especially meaningful to Martin Luther. He really liked the sound of, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And if you know Martin Luther, you know he had some serious affliction. He liked this verse so much, he wrote, rewrote it a few times on the margins of his Bible. And this particular Bible's on display in a museum in Berlin. You see, God's word rescues. Secondly, God's word restores. Not only does he rescue, but the word of God restores. Look at verse 93. I will never forget your precepts. By them you have given me life. You need to be given a little life in your current circumstances? You ever been in a place where some life would have been useful? Well, this is what the author is highlighting at this point. The experience of this writer is all over the previous 88 verses. We've seen him plea for help and then rescue came through the word of God. Verse 93, of course, piggybacks on verse 92. And instead of perishing in his affliction, the word of God gave him life. Instead of being defeated by discouragement and despair, he, he came to life because of what he found in God's word. It brought energy to his soul because of what is contained here in the Holy Scriptures. Instead of perishing... The word of God gave life. It restored hope and, and restored determination to keep on keeping on. Verse 93 is a direct answer to the prayer of verse 88. In your steadfast love, verse 88 says, give me life. I need life, God. Do you love me? Please give me life. In verse 93, here it is. You've got life. And it's in the word. All throughout this psalm, We've read this psalmist's prayers for restoration, haven't we? Help me, save me, guide me, please, 
on and on it goes. We see it in verse 25, 37, verse 40, on more, even more places. Then in verse 50, he declared that God had come through for him. It says this, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. And now here in this verse 93, he says it again. I get life from your word. Life. In our present stanza, the author isn't praying for restoration. He's declaring that God has done it. God's faithfulness has come through once again. How do you think God restores you, friend? Is there some, you know, fairy tale, magic wand that God restores you with? And you wake up tomorrow restored? God, please restore me, please restore me, please restore me. And it's all, how's he do it? Well, the word of God and the God of the word go together. God addresses your deepest needs, your deepest sorrows from his word. It's through the word that God restores us. It's through the word that we're strengthened to fight on, to bear up, to get back on the horse, to think clearly through the word. We must be in the word. We must have it taught to us. We must have it preached to us. We must have it saturate us. How sad is it to go to a church hoping to hear from God, only to have your ears tickled and be told, you're okay, keep smiling, you can do it. Friends, if there's anything in life that we know to be true, it's what Rick said earlier, we can't do it. <laughs> That's what life proves to you. Unless you are totally blind, you realize pretty quickly in life, you can't do it. We need the eternal, faithful word of God. Next we see here that God's word saves. Verse 94 and 95. I am yours. Save me. I am yours. Save me for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. These two verses clearly communicate God's saving intervention um, from the psalmist's enemies. He had enemies. And I think... We all do, whether or not they're human or otherwise. We all have enemies we deal with. These psalmist enemies crushed him, um, caused grief, grief in him. And all along the way in this psalm, we've seen it. And then we've seen God save him time and again. Sometimes the salvation would take the form of actual physical salvation. He'd get him out of trouble. And other times the salvation would be something like just restoring his strength. Uh, giving him peace in the darkest time. Either way, God saved him. Life, life is always going to include challenges from people, from circumstances, things that we might call antagonistic, um, thing, things that are opposed to God, things that are opposed to God's people. Sometimes that's other humans, other times it's circumstances. That's part of being a Christian. Is facing challenges. Life teaches us that we need God and we need His Word if we're going to survive. That's what we're learning here in Psalm 119. I'm convinced that God is constantly and actively saving us from danger in many different ways, most of the time imperceptible ways. You know, the annoyance of getting stopped at a red light when you're in a hurry, uh, 
how do we know that God hasn't saved us from a head-on collision in the next intersection? Maybe he has. <laughs> I'm certain he has in my case. I mean, we've, I think we all have had those experiences, haven't we? Man, if I would have been a second earlier to this intersection or a second later, I, I would have been dead. That kind of stuff, physical salvation that, that we experience. But more importantly, I think what's in view here is spiritual salvation from something much more dangerous than physical death. What's more dangerous than physical death? How about this? Eternal death. God saves us from that. Paul reminded Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15 that our salvation comes to us on the vehicle of Scripture. That's what the psalmist is saying. God's word saves you. This salvation that Paul spoke of to Timothy that we understand when we think of spiritual salvation is a comprehensive salvation. It's, it's something that happens in the past. It's a historical reality. Jesus actually died on a cross and that death accomplished something. It paid for the penalty that I owe for my rebellion against my creator. And then we have present salvation that the work of the Holy Spirit, that he, he, he changes us from day to day. He, 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 he saves us from the effects of sin as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have this thing that will save us in eternity future. That, that moment we stop breathing air and move into the next chapter of our existence, we call eternal life. We're saved there. We're saved historically. We're saved present day from the effects and power of sin. One day we'll be saved from the presence of sin. I'm looking forward to that personally. Getting tired of this. Why does God bother to save us at all? You ever thought about that? Think about the immensity of the universe. Think about the masses of people, important people. And here I am, puny old me. Why, why would even God think twice about saving me or you? Well, why would God bother to save us at all? Well, the answer here is in 94. It's awesome. This is why I am yours. <laughs> I'm yours, God. Save me. I belong to you. You save your people. Save me. I'm yours. That's why we personally belong to God. We're no longer on our own and self-dependent. Our safety, our well-being, our joy are no longer dependent on our own effort. We belong to God. We have personally been purchased with his infinitely precious blood. And God himself has his eye on you. If you're in Christ. And guess what? <laughs> He's had his eye on you since before time began. That's hard to comprehend. Um, but that's what the Bible tells us. It says before the foundation of the world, he chose you in Christ. Ephesians 1, 4. 
He will take care of his own. I am yours. What a wonderful truth. I'm God's property. And he takes care of his property. 1 Corinthians 3.23, Paul speaking to Corinthian believers and he said, you are Christ. You belong to Christ and Christ to God. Friends, are you, do you belong to Christ? And then John 10, these are the words from Jesus himself. Verses 28 and 29, speaking of his sheep. John 10, I give them, that is, I give my sheep eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I am yours. Save me, Lord. Save me from the love of sin. Save me from the lure of the world. Save me from the daily guilt and the power of sin. From my own foolish heart. Lord, save me. And guess what he does? Because I am his. What is God's answer to this prayer? The lambda stanza answers the question why God saves us. And so does Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do you know that God is 100% behind your salvation, both past, present, and future? God is 100% behind it. He who called you before time began is faithful and he will do it. He will accomplish his purposes in you. Sadly, there are many who, who cry for God's help to save them when things get tight, but they're motivated by their discomfort more than their desire to follow Christ now, I'm not saying that, that God doesn't use our discomfort to get our attention. I think he does. He has in my case, so I'm, I know he does. Um, what I'm saying is those who are rescued, those who are restored, those who are saved by God are those who realize, who, who see clearly that their selfish agenda isn't cutting it. That, that they're not experiencing the joy, the peace, uh, the assurance from their own prideful approach to life. It, it, those who've, who've discovered these things look to Christ and see that's where the answer is. And so they run to him. They put aside their own selfish agenda and submit to God and his. They tire of carrying the burden of guilt of sin. And they run to the cross with all these things that are weighting them down and just dump them at Jesus' feet. Those are the people who are rescued, restored, and saved. This is Grace. Which brings us to the last point in verse 96. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Speaking of the perfection here on this planet. I've seen a limit to it all. It only goes so far. Physical things. But your commandment is exceedingly broad. But oh, the word of God is eternal. Has no limits. It can save any. It can change all circumstances. It can bring hope to a hopeless situation, light to complete darkness. This is a summary of this entire stanza. All that the author has seen on this earth has an end. Even the sun, the moon, the earth, stars, all of itself, all of it, 
has an end, but God's Word, no, no end there. See, what a way to help us see the importance of the Word of God in our daily lives. Whatever it is that's working you up, that's concerning you, there's an end to it. This too will pass. But God's Word, no, there's no end. No. Everything else is passing away, but the Word of God is eternal. Instead of investing all of our efforts, all of our money, all of our time, hopes and dreams, plans into fleeting things, why not invest them in God and His kingdom, His agenda? Something that's eternal? That would be a wise investment. In Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So you want to build your life on something that will last. Not something that's going to be gone tomorrow or the next day. God's word must be the foundation upon which we build our lives daily. So are you doing that? Are you building your life on what is sure and eternal? God and his word? Friends, God is faithful. He, he doesn't disappoint. He always sees us through. That's the, the lesson of this stanza. And we find these things, these truths, in his word that he's delivered to us faithfully. This morning, we're going to um, have the Lord's Supper together, which is a time where we not only remember what Jesus has done for us, what God has done for us in Christ by sacrificing himself on Calvary, where his body was broken and his blood was spilt. Not only do we remember those things, but it's here in this Lord's Supper, this, this time where we remember these elements, that God ministers to our soul. God actually himself in his spirit shows up and applies his balm, if you will, to your weary soul in a way that doesn't happen anywhere else but here, which is why Jesus commanded that we do this. This is, this, by the way, Christian friend, is a command to those of you who know Jesus to participate in the elements. You, don't, you say, well, I don't think I'm worthy to, to come forward and receive the Lord's Supper to partake of the elements that represent Jesus. I'm not worthy. Welcome to the club. You aren't worthy. That's the point. Come and be blessed because of your unworthiness. Come and be obedient, and through your obedience, be blessed. But this table is reserved for those who claim Christ, not for those who want some magic elixir. This isn't a magic elixir, this is an obedience that we follow through with. This is Jesus meeting us here in his spirit. And so, if you know Jesus, if you have turned your back on your own agenda and are following Christ and believing him in his word, then I encourage you to come forward, no matter what your spiritual condition, and receive this blessing promised to you from Christ himself. I'm going to pray and ask God's blessing over our time at the table. And then we're going to ask you to come forward and we're going to serve you personally. 
Our elders will serve you, and you just form two lines, come down the middle, and then go back to your seat on the outside. You can take the elements whenever you'd like. You can wait till you get back to your seat, or you can partake as soon as you receive them, whatever you want. During this time, we're going to sing a song. We want you to join us. Um, but let me pray, and then I'll read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians, and then you can make your way forward. All right? Elders, if you'd come forward when I'm praying. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have provided for us in your word everything we need for life and godliness. The eternal reality of your word speaks to our hearts, ministers clearly to our souls. I pray that by your goodness and grace, you would meet us here now at the table, that we would find strength for our challenges, that we'd find encouragement from our relationship with you, that the Holy Spirit would minister to the deepest recesses of our soul. God, I ask that, that you would bless each person who comes. I pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior, who, whose blood and body are represented in these elements. The bread that was broken is broken. It represents his body that was torn apart for us. This juice represents the blood that was pouring from his veins on that fateful day. Father, we give you all the praise and honor and glory and thanksgiving for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Minister now to your people, I pray in Jesus Christ's name, amen.